Part One, Chapter Twenty Two of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne. Part One, Chapter Twenty Two. Five Months More. A violent earthquake had shaken Cape Bathurst. Such convulsions were probably frequent in this volcanic region, and the connection between them and eruptions was once more demonstrated. Hobson well understood the significance of what had occurred, and waited in anxious suspense. He knew that the earth might open and swallow up the little colony, but only one shock was felt, and that was rather a rebound than a vertical upheaval, which made the house lean over toward the lake. And burst open its walls. Immediately after this one shock, the ground again became firm and motionless. The house, although damaged, was still habitable. The breaches in the walls were quickly repaired, and the pipes of the chimneys were patched together again somehow. Fortunately, the wounds the soldiers had received in their struggle with the bears were slight and merely required dressing. Two miserable days ensued. During which the woodwork of the beds and the planks of the partition walls were burnt, and the most pressing repairs executed by MacNab and his men. The piles well driven into the earth had not yielded, but it was evident that the earthquake had caused a sinking of the level of the coast on which the fort was built, which might seriously compromise the safety of the building. Hobson was most anxious to ascertain the extent of the alteration of elevation. But the pitiless cold prevented him from venturing outside. But at last there were symptoms of an approaching change in the weather. The stars shone with rather less brilliancy, and on the eleventh January the barometer fell slightly. Hazy vapors floated in the air, the condensation of which would raise the temperature, and on the twelfth January the wind veered to the southwest, and snow fell at regular intervals. The thermometer outside suddenly rose to fifteen degrees above zero, and to the frozen colonists it was like the beginning of spring. At eleven o'clock the same morning, all were out of doors. They were like a band of captives, unexpectedly set free. They were, however, absolutely forbidden to go beyond the encant of the fort, in case of awkward meetings. The sun had not yet reappeared above the horizon. But it approached it nearly enough to produce a long twilight, during which objects could be distinctly seen to a distance of two miles. And Hobson's first thought was to ascertain what difference the earthquake had produced in the appearance of the surrounding districts. Certain changes had been effected. The crest of the promontory of Cape Bathurst had been broken off, and large pieces of the cliff had been flung upon the beach. The whole mass of the cape. Seems to have been bent towards the lake, altering the elevation of the plateau on which the fort was built. The soil on the west appears to have been depressed, whilst that on the east had been elevated. One of the results of this change of level would unfortunately be that when the thaw set in, the waters of the lake and of Paulina River, in obedience to the law requiring liquids to maintain their level, would inundate a portion of the western coast. The stream would probably scoop out another bed, and the natural harbor at its mouth would be destroyed. The hills on the eastern bank seemed to be considerably depressed, 
but the cliffs on the west were too far off for any accurate observations to be made. The important alteration produced by the earthquake may, in fact, be summed up in a very few words. The horizontal character of the ground was replaced by a slope from east to west. "'Well, Lieutenant,' said Mrs. Barnett, laughing, "'you were good enough to give my name to the port and river, "'and now there will be neither Paulina River nor Port Barnett. "'I must say I have been hardly used.' "'Well, madam,' replied Hobson, "'although the river is gone, the lake remains, "'and we will call it Lake Barnett. "'I hope that it, at least, will remain true to you.' "'Mr. and Mrs. Joliffe, on leaving the house, "'had hurried, one to the dog-house, "'the other to the reindeer stable.' The dogs had not suffered much from their lone confinement, and rushed into the court, barking with delight. One reindeer had died, but the others, though thin, appeared to be in good health. "'Well, madam,' said the lieutenant, "'we have got through our troubles better than we could have expected.' "'I never despaired,' replied the lady. "'The miseries of an arctic winter would not conquer men like you and your companions.' "'To own the truth, madam,' replied Hobson, I never experienced such intense cold before in all the years I have spent in the north, and if it had lasted many days longer we should have all been lost. The earthquake came in the nick of time then, not only to drive away the bears, but also to modify the extremity of the cold? Perhaps so, madam. All natural phenomena influence each other to a certain extent. But the volcanic structure of the soil makes me rather uneasy. I cannot but regret the close vicinity of this active volcano. If the lava from it cannot reach us, the earthquake connected with it can. Just look at our house now. Oh, all that can be put right when the fine weather comes, and you will make it all the stronger for the painful experience you have gained. Of course we shall, but meanwhile I am afraid you won't find it very comfortable. Are you speaking to me, Lieutenant, to an old traveller like me? I shall imagine myself one of the crew of a small vessel, and now that it does not pitch and toss, I shall have no fear of being seasick. What you say does not surprise me, replied Hobson. We all know of your grandeur of character, your moral courage, and your imperturbable good temper. You have done much to help us all to bear our troubles, and I thank you in my own name and that of my men. "'You flatter me, Lieutenant, you flatter me.' "'No, no, I only say what every one thinks. "'But may I ask you one question? "'You know that next June Captain Creventy is to send us a convoy with provisions, "'which will take back our furs to Fort Reliance. "'I suppose our friend Thomas Black, after seeing his eclipse, "'will return with the captain's men. "'Do you mean to accompany him?' "'Do you mean to send me back?' asked the lady with a smile. "'Oh, madam!' "'Well, my superior officer,' replied Mrs. Barnett, extending her hand to the lieutenant, "'I shall ask you to allow me to spend another winter at Fort Hope. "'Next year one of the company's ships will probably anchor off Cape Bathurst, "'and I shall return in it. "'Having come overland, I should like to go back by Bering Strait.' "'The lieutenant was delighted with his companion's decision. "'The two had become sincerely attached to each other, "'and had many tastes and qualities in common.' The hour of separation could not fail to be painful to both. And who could tell what further trials awaited the colonists in which their combined influence might sustain the courage of the rest? On the 20th January the sun at last reappeared, 
and the polar night was at an end. It only remained above the horizon for a few minutes, and was greeted with joyous hurrahs by the settlers. From this date, the days gradually increased in length. Throughout the month of February, and until the 15th March, there were abrupt transitions from fine to bad weather. The fine days were so cold that the hunters could not go out, and in the bad weather snowstorms kept them in. It was only between whiles that any outdoor work could be done, and long excursions were out of the question. There was no necessity for them, however, as the traps were in full activity. In the latter end of the winter, martens, foxes, ear-mines, wolverines, and other valuable animals were taken in large number, and the trappers had plenty to do. In March, an excursion was ventured on as far as Walrus's Bay, and it was noticed that the earthquake had considerably altered the form of the cliffs, which were much depressed, whilst the igneous hills beyond, with their summits wrapped in mist, seemed to look larger and more threatening than ever. About the 20th March, the hunters sighted the first swans migrating from the south, and uttering shrill cries as they flew. A few snow-buntings and winter-hawks were also seen, but the ground was still covered with thick layers of frozen snow, and the sun was powerless to melt the hard surface of the lake and sea. The breaking up of the frost did not commence until early in April. The ice burst with a noise like the discharge of artillery. Sudden changes took place in the appearance of the icebergs, broken by collisions, undermined by the action of the water, once more set free. Huge masses rolled over with an awful crash, in consequence of the displacement of their centre of gravity, causing fractures and fissures in the ice-fields, which greatly accelerated their breaking up. At this time the mean temperature was thirty-two degrees above zero so that the upper layer of ice on the beach rapidly dissolved, whilst the chain of icebergs, drifted along by the currents of the polar sea, gradually drew back and became lost in the fogs of the horizon. On the 15th April the sea was open, and a vessel from the Pacific Ocean, coming through Bering Strait, could certainly have skirted along the American coast and have anchored off Cape Bathurst. Whilst the ice was disappearing from the ocean, Lake Barnett was also laying aside its slippery armour, much to the delight of the thousands of ducks and other waterfowl which began to teem upon its banks. As Hobson had foreseen, however, the level of the lake was affected by the slope of the soil. That part of the beach, which stretched away from the encant of the fort, was bounded on the east by wooded hills, had increased considerably in extent and Hobson estimated that the waters of the lake had receded five hundred paces on the eastern bank. As a natural consequence, the water on the western side had risen, and if not held back by some natural barrier, would inundate the country. On the whole, it was fortunate that the slope was from east to west, for had it been from west to east, the factory must have been submerged." The little river dried up as soon as the thaw set free its waters. It might almost be said to have run back to its source, so abrupt was the slope of its bed from north to south. "'We have now to erase a river from the map of the Arctic regions,' observed Hobson to his sergeant. "'It would have been embarrassing 
if we had been dependent on the truant for drinkable water. Fortunately, we still have Lake Barnett, and I don't suppose our thirsty men will drain it quite dry. Yes, we've got the lake, replied the sergeant, but do you think its waters have remained sweet? Hobson started, and looked at his subordinate with knitted brows. It had not occurred to him that a fissure in the ground might have established a communication between the lake and the sea. Should it be so, ruin must ensue, and the factory would inevitably have to be abandoned after all. The lieutenant and Hobson rushed to the lake, and found their fears groundless. Its waters were still sweet. Early in May the snow had disappeared in several places, and scanty vegetation clothed the soil. Tiny mosses and slender grasses timidly pushed up their stems above the ground, and the sorrel and cochlearia seeds which Mrs. Joliffe had planted began to sprout. The carpet of snow had protected them through the bitter winter, but they still had to be saved from the beaks of birds and the teeth of rodents. This arduous and important task was confided to the worthy corporal, who acquitted himself of it with the zeal and devotion of a scarecrow in a kitchen garden. The long days had now returned, and hunting was resumed. Hobson was anxious to have a good stock of furs for the agents from Fort Reliance to take charge of when they arrived, as they would do in a few weeks. Marbra and Sabine, and the others, therefore, commenced the campaign. Their excursions were neither long nor fatiguing. They never went further than two miles from Cape Bathurst, for they had never before been in a district so well stocked with game, and they were both surprised and delighted. Martins, reindeers, hares, caribous, foxes, and ear-mines passed close to their guns. One thing, however, excited some regret in the minds of the colonists. Not a trace was to be seen of their old enemies, the bears, and it seemed as if they had taken all their relations with them. Perhaps the earthquake had frightened them away, for they have a very delicate, nervous organization, if such an expression can be applied to a mere quadruped. It was a pity they were gone, for vengeance could not be wreaked upon them. The month of May was very wet. Rain and snow succeeded each other. The mean temperature was only forty-one degrees above zero. Fogs were of frequent occurrence, and so thick that it would often have been imprudent to go any distance from the fort. Peterson and Calais once caused their companions grave anxiety by disappearing for forty-eight hours. They had lost their way, and turned to the south when they thought they were near to Walrus's Bay. They came back exhausted and half dead with hunger. June came at last, and with it really fine warm weather. The colonists were able to leave off their winter clothing. They worked zealously at repairing the house, the foundations of which had to be propped up, and Hobson also ordered the construction of a large magazine at the southern corner of the court. The quantity of game justified the expenditure of time and labor involved. The number of furs collected was already considerable, and it was necessary to have some place set aside in which to keep them. The lieutenant now expected every day the arrival of the detachment to be sent by Captain Creventy. A good many things were still required for the new settlement. The stores were getting low, and if the party had left the fort in the beginning of May, they ought to reach Cape Bathurst towards the middle of June. It will be remembered 
that the captain and his lieutenant had fixed upon the cape as the spot of rendezvous, and Hobson, having constructed his fort on it, there was no fear of the reinforcements failing to find him. From the 15th June, the districts surrounding the cape were carefully watched. The British flag waved from the summit of the cliff, and could be seen at a considerable distance. It was probable that the convoy would follow the lieutenant's example, and skirt along the coast from Coronation Gulf. If not exactly the shortest, it was the surest route. At a time, when the sea being free from ice, the coastline could be easily followed. When the month of June passed without the arrival of the expected party, Hobson began to feel rather uneasy, especially as the country again became wrapped in fogs. He began to fear that the agents might lose their way, and often talked the matter over with Mrs. Barnett, McNabb, and Ray. Thomas Black made no attempt to conceal his uneasiness, for he was anxious to return with the party from Fort Reliance as soon as he had seen his eclipse, and should anything keep them back from coming, he would have to resign himself to another winter, a prospect which did not please him at all, and in reply to his eager questions, Hobson could say little to reassure him. The 4th July dawned, no news. Some men sent to the southeast to reconnoitre returned, bringing no tidings. Either the agents had never started, or they had lost their way. The latter hypothesis was unfortunately the more probable. Hobson knew Captain Creventy, and felt confident that he had sent off the convoy at the time named. His increasing anxiety will therefore be readily understood. The fine season was rapidly passing away. Another two months and the Arctic winter, with its bitter winds, its whirlpools of snow, and its long nights, would again set in. Hobson, as we well know, was not a man to yield to misfortune without a struggle. Something must be done, and with the ready concurrence of the astronomer, the following plan was decided on. It was now the 5th July. In another fortnight, July 18th, the solar eclipse was to take place, and after that Thomas Black would be free to leave Fort Hope. It was therefore agreed that if by that time the agents had not arrived, a convoy of a few men and four or five sledges should leave the factory and make for the Great Slave Lake, taking with them some of the most valuable furs, and if no accident befell them, they might hope to arrive at Fort Reliance in six weeks at the latest, that is to say, towards the end of August. This matter settled, Thomas Black shrank back into his shell, and became once more the man of one idea, awaiting the moment when the moon, passing between the orb of day and himself, should totally eclipse the disk of the sun. End of chapter 22